I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So I, I do have a pretty big topic in mind for today, uh, not self or anatha. Uh, hopefully I, I managed to do it in a coherent way. Uh, I finished up uh, my graduate level finals, my first semester of grad school about like a, two weeks ago. And my brain still feels a bit like pudding and I'm not quite sure it's solidified yet. So this might be uh, too big of a topic to bite you know, into right after having written this really big paper on luminous mind and Buddha nature and this whole thing I did. A lot of work. I had so many tabs open on my laptop that my computer crashed. I had to restart it. Like, it's impressive. You know, Google Chrome, you can usually have 20 tabs open. Nothing goes wrong. I had 21 and there you go. It's all gone. You know, I had to restart my computer. So I've been doing a lot of research. And uh, Anatha has been on my mind because, you know, I, I gave a talk think two months ago where I was talking about uh, the self as maybe this fourth secret refuge, you know. And, uh, and I also mentioned how uh, in the uh, stages of awakening, you know, at the very beginning you, you do away with uh, self-identity views, but then later on you still have qualities like conceit that you're still working with. And how does that work out? How can you have those things kind of conflicting and moving around? And how can you have a self but not a self? And, and so I realized it would be uh, worth delving into and maybe even sharing uh, an alternative perspective. You know, the, the, the perspective I'm going to share today is uh, certainly uh, not my own invention. I'm not the only one that has this view. But um, I, I would say that it's definitely an alternative to what's taught to most people, or at least the opinion or view that people have about not-self uh, as they're learning about Buddhism. I think, it, you know, anatta is one of those things that's very, very confusing to people new to Buddhism. And uh, rightly so, you know. Uh, notice I'm saying not-self and, and not, I'm not saying no-self, and I'll talk about that later. Uh, but before I, I delve into the topic, uh, I figure that to, to really set the stage for it, uh, and we're a couple weeks from Christmas. I'll start it off with how I learned that Santa isn't real. I feel like that's, I feel like that'll tie in nicely actually to, to not self. So I, I was, uh, I was raised, uh, Catholic-ish, uh, up to a point, but certainly, uh, my household was one that where Christmas was a big deal and you know, we had the, the living tree in, in the living room, you know, like a, the smell of pine and all that stuff. And, of course, we were told the story of Santa Claus and how he was going to bring us all sorts of fun gifts. And, and uh, you know, I, I loved it. You know, from an early age, I was very caught up in, in magic and, and mystery. And so the idea of Santa Claus, which is basically this, this old, overweight wizard who's very generous, you know, was something I fell in love with immediately, you know. I, I would think about Santa Claus all the time, even the rest of the year. It wasn't even just a Christmas thing for me. I would, I would always be thinking about Santa Claus and how he did what he did. You know, how does he get around the world all in one night? How does he make all those cool toys? Why do they say made in China on the back? You know, I had questions, but I still had this deep, deep belief in Santa Claus. And that was, uh, you know, in, in spite of all the evidence contrary, you know, I remember being five years old, maybe four, 
And uh, I was so excited for Christmas that I woke up very early that morning. It was probably five in the morning, way earlier than your average four-year-old would wake up. And I start walking down the stairs to, to see the Christmas tree with all the presents. And I get downstairs and my mom is still wrapping presents. Because at that point, she was doing most of the heavy lifting. This is before my parents got divorced and my mom remarried. So at that point, she was doing most of the parenting. And so she was wrapping all the presents up. And I was very confused because, generally speaking, when Santa delivers presents, they're already wrapped. And so I said, Mom, what are you doing? And she said, Santa forgot to wrap the presents. I'm wrapping them for him. Just go back upstairs. And me, being four years old, said, that makes sense. And I went back upstairs. You know, and then in first grade, again, we had Santa visit us in class. And I thought, wow, how amazing. Of all the schools in the world, Santa chose ours. And of all the classrooms, this one. And again, evidence to the contrary. There were a lot of other students who said, hey, isn't that like the sixth, sixth grade math teacher? And I said, no, nah, Santa, of course. Look at the beard and everything. You know, and, and I had all these moments like that through, throughout my childhood where there was this evidence that, like, maybe things weren't the way I wanted them to be. Maybe there wasn't the Santa guy after all. But I kept believing anyway because I, I had a strong conviction, a desire to believe. And this continued on and on and on until I was about 11 or so. And I was faced with a lot of students in my classroom saying, you still believe that guy? You still believe that whole story? You know, the sleigh, the reindeer, the whole thing? And I said, well, why not? I mean, he must exist, right? I get presents every year. It all seems to make sense. The cookies have been bitten. The milk's been drunk. I'm, I mean, I, I see that evidence. They're like, well, what about all the other evidence? Like all the stuff about the toys and made here, all these things. Remember the sixth grade guy, the math teacher? And I thought, no, no, no. This, this can't be true. This, this thing about Santa. Santa must be real. And so one day, my, my parents, my sisters, and I, we were walking to the grocery store. Where my parents live, they're about half a block to a block away from this grocery store. And we're all walking together one day. And I'm walking next to my dad, and I said, Dad, I, I can't get my head around this Santa thing. And there's so many people saying Santa doesn't exist. But, like, like I know that, like, he, he must be real. And, like, why are all these people lying? And then he, he hung back a little bit, slowed it down, so it was just me and him. My sisters, who were younger than me, were going forward with my mom. And he, he had to tell me, like, look, you're getting too old for this stuff. Like, there's no Santa Claus. It's us. We buy the presents. We put them under the tree. It's, it's, it's all, it's all make-believe. It's just a story, right? And I was devastated because there was confirmation. And I started thinking back to, like, when I would write a letter to Santa and put it in, you know, the mailbox, and it would come back. And it'd be written in this great calligraphy and all this stuff. And it turns out it'd been my dad the whole time. Right? But he put, he put so much work into these letters. You know, he'd make little cute, you know, uh, you know, berries and, you know, the holly berries, leaves and everything. All sorts of stuff. Calligraphy. He'd, he'd spend a lot of time on this fantasy he was constructing for me. And it was so convincing that all the other evidence didn't seem to matter. Right? I was like, oh, you know, so caught up in, the, in, this, in this story. But it was a story, and I had to put it aside at a certain point. And so I started to, to move towards other religions very soon afterward. I, I got curious about, about myth and story and belief, 
And so 11 kind of led into 12, and 12 was the year of exploration for me. I started exploring a lot of different things, including Buddhism. And up to that point, I'd also been pretty convinced about another thing uh, called a soul. And that was another thing that as a Catholic, I was pretty convinced was a sure thing. Must exist, no questions. There couldn't possibly be other traditions or religions that would say otherwise. And then I start studying Buddhism. And initially, I come across this concept that in these older books and older translations, they translate anatta as no soul. And then so I had to let that sit with me for a while. And I had to th contemplate that because I was pretty young and precocious. But you hear something like no soul. And when you've had a pretty strong conviction about soul for a long time, you really start to think about what it might mean to not have one. And then I kept practicing Buddhism and also practicing other religions where soul was still kind of a thing, but still trying to wrap my head around a lot of different beliefs and, uh, and practices, but more importantly, concepts. And, and over time, this, this concept of, of soullessness I've seen might be something that was a mistranslation. There's a reason why I use not self and not soullessness. There's also a reason I don't use no self, because as you start reading the, the Pali Canon, you know, in the Theravada tradition, we have the Pali Canon, particularly the, the Pali Suttas or Nikayas, the teachings of the Buddha, the things that, you know, we can believe that he said, or at least are approximate to things he said. And I w as I was reading that, I, I started to get a, a different understanding of this whole no self thing. Maybe it's not self. And also... Maybe it's not something that the Buddha is saying as an ultimate reality, but maybe as a way of relating to things in this world. And, uh, and so I'll, I'll start off with um, one of the Pali suttas in question here. And uh, let, me, let me get the right one, because I've got, again, on Google Chrome, too many tabs. It's a problem. So this is from the Sanya Sutta. And so in the Sanya Sutta, the Buddha is talking about uh, different perceptions that are good to have, perceptions that are helpful on the path, perceptions that if we keep in mind and really develop will lead to the deathless, lead to full awakening. And uh, the, the way it's translated here, I think, is, is very beneficial, uh, helpful to me in understanding this difference that I'm going to try to explain to you guys. The perception of not-self in what is stressful when developed and pursued is of great fruit, of great benefit. It gains a footing in the deathless, has the deathless as its final end. Thus was it said, in reference to what, in reference to what was it said? When a monk's awareness often remains steeped in the perception of not-self in what is stressful, his heart is devoid of eye-making and my making with regard to this conscious body and externally with regard to all themes has tr has transcended pride is at peace and is well released and so what i find uh, illuminating for me at least and i don't know if it's the same for you what, what struck me as interesting is the perception of not self in what is stressful and 
what we don't see in this sutta, and at least in this translation, is not the perception of no self and no soul. And I think that there's a reason for this. You know, the Buddha was not trying to teach a philosophy that explained the underpinnings, the workings of the universe on every single conceptual level. A lot of philosophies do that, and I've studied them, especially Western philosophy. Western philosophy tries to answer every single question you could possibly have about every facet of the universe, and somehow manage to do all of that very poorly because we end up with more questions than we have answers. And this goes back all the way to Plato and trying to understand the way the world works. And they were trying to understand the, the world working where you have gods that are supposed to be in control of everything, making everything perfect, making everything wonderful. And why aren't things perfect? And why aren't things wonderful? And Plato, in Timaeus, one of the, the, the writings that, that, that he has on the workings of the universe, has this to say. He says, you know, of course God is perfect, and he has this perfect plan, this, this perfect, you know, uh, map of how the world is supposed to work. He basically has like plans for like a building, you know, he's got the blueprints, right? But the, the problem is, it's the material that he's using. The material is just no good. So the material he's using is, is flawed, it's imperfect, but he's trying to shape it into this perfect thing. And it gets close enough. It's kind of the best of all the possible worlds we could have, but it's not perfect like the ideas he has in his head because of this matter that he's using. No good. It's subject to decay. It's subject to fading away. It's subject to all sorts of flaws and limits because they are these discrete things. And that was the answer they had. The Buddha specifically tried to not answer those things. There are many suttas where people approach him and, and they ask, do I have a soul? And he remains silent. Do I not have a soul? And he remains silent. And people ask, this sense of self, will it lead me to the knowledge of, of my soul? And he remains silent. And he even says that if we approach the path with the wrong perception, we'll have these kind of questions arise and try to solve them, try to find the answers for them. You know, it, this, this sense that I have, this consciousness, will it lead me to the direct knowledge of soullessness? And he says that that's actually the wrong way to practice. And for me, that was a really hard pill to swallow because... I had been practicing all of these different religions, all of these different paths. They had all these interesting ideas about what the soul might be. And I'd been studying Western philosophy, people like Plato and people like, like uh, Plotinus, all these great thoughts they had about how the world works. But then I really thought about how many philosophers there are in the world and how many of them have found any satisfaction or peace by throwing these questions around in their heads for their whole lives. And when you look at the prevalence of both coffee and alcohol at any philosophical gathering, I'd hazard a bet that really, at the end of it, they have a lot of questions spinning around, but not a whole lot of peace. And there's a reason why the Buddha didn't focus on all of those really heady, really philosophical questions, because they're absolutely the wrong ones for us to focus on in this life. You know, there's this famous saying about the handful of leaves where the Buddha is sitting with his disciples and there's a bunch of leaves all over the ground, much like us here in our Southern California winter, just leaves, no snow, but leaves everywhere. And he says, he says to his disciples, look at all these leaves, you know, 
all of this is like all the truths that could possibly be out there. All these leaves. But then here are these leaves in my hand. And he says, where are there more leaves? And they said, well, clearly on this forest floor. Well, what about, what about here in my hand? How many leaves? Well, much less leaves. He goes, yeah, but this is the stuff we're focusing on. There's all these philosophical things we can try to understand. But these ones, these are the ones about suffering, about craving and clinging. These are the ones that if we focus on, will lead to a happy life, a peaceful life. And so the Buddha tells us that we shouldn't really focus on whether or not in an ultimate way there is this not-self or no-self or soullessness, but rather it might be a useful tool for us to look at things that cause us suffering and strife and stress as not-self as not belonging to us, as not intrinsic to our nature, things that we can do away with, things that we can cast aside. And that's actually one of the first kind of realizations we have, one of the first fetters we really break on the path as we, as we start moving towards awakening. A sotapanna, a, a stream enterer, does away with self-identity views. In particular, those are the views around the pancha uh, kanda, the, the five... Uh, aggregates or five heaps. Now, nowadays, it's pretty common for someone to say there's no eternal self, there's no eternal substance. What you really are are these heaps of things. And quite honestly, I can understand why people would talk about it that way, but I, I don't think that in the Pali Canon, the Buddha is talking about the aggregates that way. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the five aggregates, uh, they are uh, form, uh, feeling, perception, and then the fourth one people translate a lot differently. Sometimes you have like volitional formations, volitional fabrications, uh, and then you have consciousness. And some people teach them as the things that you are. You don't have a soul, you don't have this one uh, unit of, of existence, but you have these kind of composite factors. And, that, and in fact, that's why it's translated as aggregates, because you are aggregated. But the thing is, this word kanda, the way you can translate it, has this other connotation of it, of like heap or pile. And it also has this other connotation, this much older translation of like the trunk of a tree, a tree trunk. So if you combine that tree trunk image with like that heap or pile image, what you really have is maybe like a pile of logs. That might work. And if we play around with that idea, we might think of it in different ways. We've been living our lives with this big stack of, of logs, this big pile of logs on our back. And we've just been carrying them around. These clinging aggregates, these various ways we relate to life that lead towards strife, dissatisfaction, and, and just dismay, you know, uh, stress. And we're just walking around with this, this big, big stack of logs. Not realizing that at any time we can take those logs off, tie them all together, turn them into a raft, and get across to the other shore. Because what would we do if we tried to cross that river with the big pile of logs on our back? We'd sink right down into that river. But if we take them off and stop identifying with them and turn them into a raft as tools, then there's something useful, something that we can apply to the path and go across the river to the other shore that the Buddha tells us is where we find the peace of Nibbana. We're trying to get to that other shore. 
And so these five khandhas, these five aggregates, we see are not things that the Buddha told us to identify with, uh, quite the opposite. He tells us that there's not a self that we should find there. Specifically, they're not worthy of identifying with, not worthy of being our home, but they are worthy of being tools because everything in this world of samsara is fabricated, created, has a beginning and has an end, is impermanent, which means unsatisfactory, which means suffering. But they're precisely the things we have at our disposal to work on, to work with, to develop better qualities, skillful qualities. Uh, so I'll, I'll move over to a, a different sutta now. Um, I keep having to use my, my phone for this. It has, its, it has its pluses and it also has its minuses. Let me see. Yeah, so this is from the, the, the Pancha Sutta, so the, the five sutta, the five brethren, because this is a talk that the Buddha is giving to five disciples, five monks. But he's also talking about these five aggregates. And so this passage I'm going to read, he says of form, but he also says the same thing of feeling and perception and fabrication and consciousness. He says, form, monks, is not self. If form were the self, this form would not lend itself to dis-ease. It would be possible to say with regard to form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. But precisely because form is not self, this form lends itself to disease. And it is not possible to say with regard to form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. And he says the same thing of feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness. Because we find that in these same aggregates, the same thing we find in everything else in the world. We find impermanence, we find unsatisfactoriness, and we find truly because of those two, not self. In that we find nothing worth taking ownership of. But the thing is we've been living our whole lives taking ownership of these things. And not only taking ownership of the aggregates, but through them taking ownership of various other things in the world, assuming that we're going to find happiness there, peace there. Because truly, we think that we're somehow going to find delight and pleasure in all these things that are fading away, all these things that are impermanent and cause suffering. And I think I talked about this uh, a little bit last month as well, you know, the, this very, the various ways that we cling on to things and we think that they're going to make us happy. And even when they do make us happy for a while, it's never for long enough. And the Buddha is always telling us that there's a, there's a happiness that is much better, that lasts much longer, that is steadier. And so we use these aggregates, and also, by extension, the six sense bases, so all of our senses, including our mind, to move towards skillfulness. And so this, this aspect, this perception of not-self, we see as a part of right view, which is the beginning of the path. If you look at the Eightfold Path, we start with right view. And of course, in a, matter, in a way of speaking, we also end there too, but this, this perception we have is something that we develop as we're going through the path. And by doing so, we, we gain more energy and more momentum because we start seeing these things that are stressful and start casting them aside and moving towards things that are less stressful, more easeful. And so, you know, one way of looking at this 
is simply the way we approach uh, meditation. You know, um, when we sit down to meditate, at least with me, uh, we start off with a very chaotic mind. And it really doesn't, doesn't matter how long you've been meditating. I would say for a lot of meditators, those first couple minutes, you start sitting down and you close your eyes, there's a kind of restlessness there. There's a, there's a stirring of energy there, the mind kind of flittering around. And one way of approaching that is trying to like force it down and say, you know what, this is too much chaos. I got to wrangle this mind together and really focus and push down and push down all these little thoughts and all of these various things that are moving me this way and that. And what we find is actually more tension, more dissatisfaction, more dis-ease, yeah? But another way is kind of sifting through that chaos and seeing what is actually pleasurable and peaceful even in the midst of that. And we might find that it's just the fact that we're sitting down with eyes closed, not watching TV, not listening to the radio or a podcast, uh, no offense to any podcast listeners that will be listening to this later. Um, you know, not, not distracting our, our minds, but, but giving it a, at least a chance for stillness. And then maybe taking on a meditative object that is itself uh, still and peaceful, that lends itself towards that. So for me, that's always been the breath. This thing that I can rely on, that is always there with me in every moment. I'm always breathing. I mean, because if I'm not, I'm dead. But throughout my day, I have this breath. And so when I sit down to meditate, here's this breath that I can also make peaceful. I can breathe in ways that are pleasurable to the body. And when I do that, I find that the mind begins to settle. And by doing that, I'm moving away from those things that are actually very stressful. Those things that are not causing me happiness, not giving me any, any real happiness and moving towards something that is. And that's okay, that's, that, that itself is a form of fabrication. I'm moving from stressful fa fabrications to those that are less stressful, but ultimately still stress stressful because they're impermanent. At some point, the meditation's gotta end. I gotta get up and get back to things. And I can try to hold on to that peace in various ways, but it's this thing that I keep having to refresh again and again. In a lot of ways, I think it's a, it's a lot like, uh, like drinking water. You know, you quench your thirst for a while, but you're still going to get thirsty, but you still got to quench that thirst. The thing is, though, what we're really thirsty for is water. But how many of us decide to drink coffee instead, which is a diuretic, so you're only getting more dehydrated, or drink soda and there's a bunch of sugar in that, or drink anything else but water? And that's really the thing we need. That's the thing that's going to quench our thirst. And it's in the same way. We keep looking for all these things that are going to be pleasurable, we think. They're going to be satisfying, we think. But then they're really not. They're really not in the end. So we should move more towards those things that are, that can then give us that kind of satisfaction. And meditation is one of those great ways to start developing that. You know, the, the jhanas, the, the absorptions that are taught in the, in the Pali Suttas are actually really worthwhile. And... Uh, honestly, a, a much bigger part of the path than people currently give it credit for. Because that's the kind of peace that's going to give you the momentum, to give you the strength and the energy to perse persevere when really big things come up in your mind and when really big and stressful things happen in your lives. 
You know, when we, when we break up with, with our significant others, when we lose significant others, when we, we go through uh, losing a job or, or not having enough money or falling short in some way or whatever drama we get caught up in, you know, it, all you have to do is, is listen to any love song and you know how dramatic love is, right? And those are all things that we face. And that's just one example, but there's so many others, all these hardships that we have in life. And we have to have something that we can fall back on when things get tough, when things get difficult. And these fabrications, these, these perceptions that we have are ways that we can start steering towards another direction. So this whole not-self thing might be a way of, of realizing these things that are not giving us happiness, even if they seem like a part of ourselves, are things that we can put aside. Now, I told you guys I was working on this really massive essay for, for my, my graduate school. And one of the things I was, I was writing about is luminous mind. It's this concept that only appears in one set of suttas in the entire Pali canon and then never anywhere else again. Luminous mind. And people try to wrap their heads around what luminous mind even means. But in truth, all the Buddha was trying to say is that when we approach the path in the right way, and certainly when we meditate in the right way, we begin to weaken and we begin to, to dissolve all of these defilements. Greed, hatred, and delusion, but all of the other offspring that they produce. All of these different things that, they, that come about because of greed, hatred, and delusion. And when the mind becomes clear of all of those things, we find a luminous mind, a spacious and free and peaceful mind. And we start getting tastes of that as we follow the path and as we meditate. In fact, the reason someone even becomes a stream enterer is because they've had a taste of Nibbana. They have seen that there's a goal at the end and they know for themselves that it's possible to get there. They have confidence in it. And part of that confidence we see in this self-identity view is that we start breaking away these things that we thought were intrinsic to us. And a lot of us think our defilements are intrinsic to us. We think that greed is intri intrinsic to our nature. And we think that hatred is intrinsic to our nature. And the same thing with delusion. These things that, that just stick to us like, like glue and then we, we can't peel it off. But the truth is, these are things that have passed into the mind and they can pass out. And because they can find their way out, that's what makes the path possible. It's precisely because these things are not self. But we have to remember that that's not necessarily saying that we do not have a soul or that we do have a soul. Because the Buddha was always silent on that. He didn't want to get into that because he realized that trying to find those answers were either futile or pointless in terms of easing our suffering. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is, uh, you know, that big guy in the red suit might exist after all. Who knows? You know, I was at the mall the other day and saw a guy look, that looked just like him. So who knows? Anyway, I, I, I think that's, that's all I got. Uh, I hope that was helpful. I hope that was useful and if, at the very least entertaining. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening.